the business of culture, the culture of business, markets, policy, media and technology, books, misfits. We're practically an everything app. <laughs> Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. We're starting from scratch. We're going to these other platforms. Whenever I post on threads, now I feel like I need to simultaneously post on Blue Sky. That's a painful process. It's not fun, but I think that's kind of the future, regardless of what happens with X. The future of the social web is decentralized. It's federated. And I think more and more we'll be able to post one place and see that same message across different apps. But right now we're in the kind of transition period and it's simply not fun. Here with author Zoe Schiffer on billionaire tech mogul Elon Musk's tragic comic acquisition of Twitter, one of the most expensive self-owns in the history of capitalism. Stay with us. This episode is made possible by the support of Salomon & Ludwin, a boutique wealth management firm dedicated to helping families make smart financial decisions. You worked hard and sacrificed to create and build wealth. They treat advice given to you with the respect your journey deserves. For over 30 years, Salmon & Ludwin has earned a reputation of trust and confidence, recognized by Barron's as a Hall of Fame advisor. More at SalomonLudwin.com. Full Disclosure Podcast to NPR, Spotify, and of course, Apple Podcasts. The link is FullDRadio.com. You can follow on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at handle FullDRadio. And a shout out to our listeners on WVTF Radio IQ, Virginia's NPR news station. You can DM me to carry Full Disclosure on your air. Joining me from Northern California is Zoe Schiffer. She is the author of the extremely enjoyable and digestible book. It's called Extremely Hardcore Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. You know, it's called Extremely Hardcore because that was the message that Elon in his mania, in this manic moment when he finally, you know, the dog caught the pickup truck. He said, <laughs> I only want extremely hardcore people working here. How are you? I'm so good. I'm so glad to be here. This is great. You are, of course, managing editor of Platformer, where you cover Twitter, X Corp, what they call it now, and Elon Musk. Um, you've been at The Verge. You and I have done some NBC hits together. Uh, I devoured this book. I like how you, you, having done one book myself, you cut it up into these like you know small plates, bite-sized tapas of anecdotes, <laughs> and the kind of the drip, drip of this of this misfit, the world's wealthiest man. Uh, acquiring this company for a non-economic amount of, I think, $44 billion and yeah. walks in, I remember, with a kitchen sink as if, like, you know, there's an asperger's metaphor. Let that sink in. Tell me about that. Yeah, I mean, so just in terms of the structure, I really wanted the book to feel like the pace of what Twitter felt like when Elon Musk first bought it, when everything was moving at warp speed and stuff was changing absolutely so fast. So from the moment that he walks in with the sink, like you said, it's very clear that he has no interest in keeping the magic of what Twitter used to be. He's completely dismissive of Twitter 1.0, as he calls it, which he sees as slow and inefficient and also overrun by this thing he calls the woke mind virus. In his view, anything that's censorious, any level of content moderation is leftist liberalism that needs to be rooted out. Now, look, I was there when Twitter had its IPO. I believe it was in 2013. This was a this was a startup company. It's never been hugely profitable. It's clearly been iconic. I consider myself a power user. A colleague at Business Week nudged me to get on and start tweeting circa 2008. And we saw things like the Arab Spring. We saw things like Iran's incipient kind of democratic movement going to Twitter, the 140 character, you know, the SMS compatibility. It always punched bigger than kind of its economic output. It was clearly nowhere near as profitable as Meta or Google or Apple or any of these players. But fundamentally, it wasn't broken when he acquired it in you know, 22, 23, it was just not, it was bloated and it was not as profitable and, and he had issues with it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Elon Musk has tried to spin the narrative that Twitter was in dire financial straits before he took over, and that's simply not accurate. The company, like you said, was stagnant. It wasn't particularly innovative. Its revenue was a fraction of Facebook's revenue, and yet its cultural relevance was global. It could start social movements like the Me Too movement and Black Lives Matter and fuel revolutions across the world. And so it, that cultural relevance had always outpaced its business fundamentals, like you said. I mean, to say nothing of then President Donald Trump's platform, Absolutely. everybody waiting with bated breath. Like imagine yourself 
watching the Cosby show or Home Alone and Donald Trump in a cameo in the late 80s. And like, in the year 2020, <laughs> you know, you're going to have this guy and this panopticon of social media and all of these henchmen and bots and people amplifying him and this ecosystem that includes the likes of Elon Musk's and yeah. his network of sycophants. And there's crossover with some quasi-libertarianism and the right wing. And it's just, it's a miasma. And uh, what it used to be to me is this place that you'd open your phone in the morning and you'd get your news. It's just a shell within less than 20 months of, of Elon Musk acquiring it. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable how swiftly its cultural relevance has declined, along with, we should say, its revenue. You know, going back to what you were saying about Donald Trump, that really was a huge turning point for Twitter. The company felt enormous responsibility in how the president had used his Twitter profile to kind of spread his narrative, which included a lot of misinformation. And for so much of Twitter's history, it had seen itself as the free speech wing of the free speech party. It had taken a really hands-off approach to content moderation. But after Donald Trump was elected president in 2016, the company felt like it it had not done enough to push back at some of the claims that he was making. And so when he ran for re-election, we saw Twitter taking stronger action. And that moment after 2021, after January 6th, when Twitter ultimately decides to ban Donald Trump is actually the moment when Elon Musk decided, oh, this woke mind virus that I am so preoccupied with that I see all over the world, it's actually infesting my favorite social platform. And this is an enormous problem. And like with so many problems that Elon Elon Musk identifies, he sees himself as the sole savior, the person who can save it. For the layman out there, you know Elon Musk primarily as a person who's ramped up Twitter, the, the modern time's most successful auto startup. I believe it's still worth more than any other automaker in the world after the correction. I mean, Toyota has had a catch-up, but really, unbelievable. He was not the founder of the company, but he came in and dealt with its ramp-up. And I've covered this mm -hmm. you know, since he kind of came out of the gate. This is a guy who, when Consumer Reports, I remember circa 2012, reviewed the Model S and said that you know it is the highest score we've ever given to a kind of a mm -hmm. safety and all-around score. He wanted to come in and put an addendum and a correction to the press release to say, actually, you have to specify that we broke your machine. We are so you know <laughs> substantial. Like that's that's the mindset of the guy and the competition. Then to take that and be SpaceX and to have the boring company. And you talk about key man risk. I'm sure you've read the Ronan Farrow investigation mm -hmm. in the New Yorker. This is a person who is unilaterally deciding whether to shut on or shut off satellites that can inform Ukraine as the you know Russian military position. He's a very personification of key man risk. He's worth $260 billion, and he decides, you know what, I need to take on this uh, more abundant but still profitable uh, social media channel. Uh, what strikes me, and I'm sure others have said this, is there were no kind of corporate governance guardrails on that. I imagine the Twitter's management in the very kind of bifurcated public stock uh, perspective of the world is, what we got to take the highest bid. If he comes in with the highest bid, and I have to have that fiduciary interest. I don't care what happens to safety, to security. I don't have to vet it. Maybe there could have been a national interest, national security concern. So they took it. But then, Zoe, I know I'm, I'm sounding long-winded with this because it blows my mind. Banks came in mm -hmm. in a slow-motion car wreck and said, okay, $44 billion price, and the tech market is corrected. He could have probably bought Twitter for half of that price had he waited. The banks ponied up $13 billion, and they still consummated that amount. This is what bothers me, and I want to I unpack this with you because you get it culturally. I imagine that that was ponied up just for proximity to Elon Musk as a call option on future deals, whether it's his personal wealth management, whether it's taking SpaceX public, because those banks are still holding on to that debt. Yeah, absolutely. There is no question that if Elon Musk was not Elon Musk, he wouldn't have gotten the same deal that he got in terms of the bank loans that he received in order to buy Twitter. The company was extremely over leveraged from the moment that he purchased the company. But as you said, the banks were making this assessment that it wasn't just helping Elon Musk buy Twitter. It was helping one of the most powerful people in the world who runs multiple successful companies. And if they could help him out and be in his good graces with the Twitter deal, there was an opportunity to 
to make more money elsewhere. We don't know how the banks feel today now that their investments have gone down so precipitously, but one has to imagine that there is some level of bad blood based on that decision. Well, I, I used to work in the brokerage industry. I worked on Wall Street, and that's what actually catapulted me to a career in journalism is that there was so much uh, interest. In, uh, there was there was dealing at cross purposes with your clients. Like you'd prioritize mm. one over the other. I don't want to get in the weeds with you too much, but you know, in terms of like that sycophant culture, tell this man what he wants to hear, not what mm. he needs to hear. Reminds me of the Zappos founder somewhat. Was it Tony Shea who? He had this terrible decline into kind of drug abuse and mm-hmm. self-harm, and he died. I was thinking about um, this uh, tell-all recently. I read about uh, Bridgewater's uh, CEO and founder. This, You have so much money and so much power that you just decree, as, as much as you might say, I'm for free speech or radical transparency. Everything that you've documented in this book is like, he will fire you unless you tell him what he wants to hear. Yeah, absolutely. Twitter employees would say time and again, with Elon Musk, it's not the right answer. It's the least fireable answer. And that's why I think the Elon Musk that we see today, the one who is running Twitter, now known as X Corp, is a very different Elon Musk from the one who was building Tesla and SpaceX. I think before he had more people around him who would push back on him, who would tell him the truth. And over time, that circle has simply gotten smaller and smaller. Elon Musk has grown more isolated, more surrounded, as you said, by sycophants, people who tell him yes, no matter what, who tell him everything he says is brilliant, who, when he tells the same joke again and again in the meeting, don't mention you're telling the same joke again. They laugh hysterically as if it's the first time they've heard it. You know, I'm thinking about the time that, look, he tried to fight the deal after the mania or whatever happened. It might have been a bipolar episode where he realized, whoops, uh, $44 billion was way too high a price. He blamed bots. He said that management wasn't forthcoming. There was a back and forth, back and forth Delaware Chancery Court. And when he realized he had to face the music, I don't know if it was reputational risk or throwing more bad money after good money. He consummated the transaction and he walked in with that kitchen sink. And as you so incredibly describe in the book, is the the mood was almost immediately Gestapo-esque. The old tweeps nicknamed Elon's Uh, I guess his coterie, the goons. And I want to quote, you said, there was this assignment that needed to be done by Sunday morning. Those who didn't, those employees who did not have a sentence written about them would be laid off with two months of severance. Managers scrambled to justify why employees who were pregnant or undergoing cancer treatment should keep their jobs. Quote, it was like Schindler's List, one executive remembers. Nobody slept that entire night. Some managers asked their peers to put them on the layoff list, worried that if they resigned, they wouldn't get severance. And just this unbelievable culture of fear. At any point, he could march through the halls. Eventually, he wasn't paying uh, vendors. The bathrooms weren't getting cleaned. He was forcing people to, uh, I I can't believe you illustrated this, like uh, violate the building inspection rules and turn things into kind of quasi-hotel rooms. There was a woman with a nursing newborn there. Again, no board or no guardrails could come against this and say, uh, this isn't legit. I understand you broke it. You bought it, you own it, but there should be protections. Yeah, no, I mean, he he intentionally sets up his companies in such a way that if he does have a board, they're very subservient to him. And in the case of Twitter, obviously, he does not. He has investors, but even then, he's drawing from his close circle of friends, and he really doesn't have many people who he has to answer to. But let's unpack that posture that you described right from the beginning. And I know it was it was so breathless and a mouthful what I said. I need to no, shut no. up, but I'm fresh <laughs> off. I'm fresh off the contact high of reading this. And oh, the way you... The way you kind of dabbed it, dispensed it, like leaves you with little, these these episodes, these cartridges of trauma, but go ahead. Okay. So it's so kind of you to say, um, and I genuinely appreciate it. Talking to someone who's actually read the book is, you have to, it's very special because I've done a bunch of these and it's never clear to me <laughs> if someone has or not. But going back to what you said, so Elon Musk, Twitter is in a relatively stable financial position before Elon Musk buys the company. The economy is tanking, but the ads market is cyclical and it'll bounce back. People aren't particularly worried about it. Elon Musk buys the company. He saddles it with $13 billion in bank debt. The interest alone on that debt in January is going to be more than a billion dollars. And so his priority right from the beginning is firing as many people as possible and cutting costs as quickly as possible. So he doesn't come in with 
a lot of curiosity. Employees would say in these early meetings when they were trying to explain how Twitter's backend architecture worked, he would cut them off and be very dismissive. And immediately he comes in with the goons, his close circle of lieutenants, and they're tasked with kind of executing the layoffs, cut as many people as you can, as quickly as you can. And he's having this team of Tesla and SpaceX engineers actually root through Twitter's code base and figure out which engineers they think are smart and successful and should stay. And actually and which emailing ones... engineers and say, you have 24 hours to print yes. out some of your code. Exactly. Justify your love. It is this the most mercurial. Exactly. Yeah, there were all of these loyalty tests right from the beginning. But even those things that we just touched on, the fact that they're having people who build cars and rockets root through the code of a global social platform and decide who should stay and who should go, shows that there was an immense amount of hubris and not a lot of curiosity because they assumed that Twitter employees, for lack of a better term, were idiots and should shut up and leave. I mean, I I can't get the image out of my head of, of, you know, my high school uh, philosophy and economics teacher, Mr. Lutness, who does listen to this pod, I think loyally, he tried to teach us about these certain logical fallacies. And I don't have the Latin names for them everywhere, but it's certainly a logical fallacy when you come in and you you put out effectively this huge leverage buyout for an asset that was bought at really an uneconomic value. And you come in and immediately say, we're on fire. We're going to be broke unless we start slashing over four months or something. Well, we're broke because you took on all this debt. And it actually, you're not on the hook for the debt necessarily. The company is on the hook for the the debt. So, you know, no one no one even to call that out. Clearly the old board, the old management was cleared out. None of his Silicon Valley bros, I don't know, Jurvitson or Calcanis or anybody's like, uh, dude, this this could rebound to you so reputationally awfully. If this crashes and you're there slashing and burning, if you get employment lawsuits on your hands, I never saw any example of that being done by his his insider group. No. And I think, you know, kind of like Donald Trump, Elon Musk does have this Teflon-like quality where his fans are so ardent that it does seem like in the inner circle and the people who love him no matter what, who have bought Tesla stock and want to prop him up no matter what, there's very little that he can do wrong. And we kind of saw two versions of reality start to coalesce after the acquisition went through. There were people who were cheering him on, who thought that Twitter was faster and more fun than it used to be. And then everyone else who felt like the platform was swiftly declining and was probably, if not going to go out of business, then certainly going to be an entirely different platform than the one that they had known and loved. Well, Zoe, who comes in and punishes their power users, you being one of them, for example. (laughs) I'm thinking Kara Swishers and others and saying, okay, we're here. Not only is he not nibbling on your ear and giving you stuff, he's taking stuff away from you, namely the verified checkmark. And immediately, like through some haphazard process and some misunderstanding with Stephen King and all of these people, he says, oh, $8. And so it became, explain how it kind of became this perverse thing that it was not a good housekeeping seal of assurance within like 48 hours. (laughs) Right. Yeah. No. So the first major project that Elon Musk launches at Twitter is tying verification to a subscription model. Previously, if you were a prominent person across sports media politics, you could get a blue check mark ostensibly. But crucially, almost any member of the mainstream press could also get verified pretty fast if their institution had a savvy social media manager. And this really rubbed Elon Musk the wrong way because he has enormous mistrust of the mainstream media. He doesn't like journalism or journalists. And so immediately he has a double incentive to kind of change how the blue check mark is handed out. He wants to shift Twitter's business model away from advertising because advertisers want things like content moderation and towards subscription, which would kind of free him to allow as much free speech as possible. Simultaneously in doing this, he's going to be able to take away the blue check mark from journalists and other groups who he thinks are not deserving of it. Unfortunately, The immediate rollout of Twitter Blue is so botched. The platform is overrun with impersonators. All of the things that employees, ironically, had warned Elon Musk about came to pass, and advertisers start to flee. He's actually forced at the very beginning to roll Twitter Blue back. I mean, share share the Eli Lilly example with us. That's just just so beyond surreal. (laughs) Yeah, we had this 
activist and journalist who was kind of scrolling through. I interviewed him for the book and he's scrolling through Twitter one day and sees a bunch of tweets look, they look like they're from celebrities, but they're saying really awful, racist, surprising things. And he realizes, oh, Elon Musk has rolled out the new Twitter blue. And this is actually an opportunity. He considers tweeting something silly from this account, changing his name to something different and say uh, to something like Subway and tweeting that the footlong sandwich is now 13 inches. But he realizes that he wants to do something more with the potential power. So he changes the name of this account to Eli Lilly, one of the biggest drug manufacturers in the United States, one of the biggest producers of insulin, crucially. And he tweets, he changes his profile picture and everything to match it. He does in his profile say that it's a parody account. But if you just glance at it, it does look like the real Eli Lilly. And then he tweets out, insulin is free. And this tweet goes completely viral. Eli Lilly is completely panicking. They're calling Twitter. They're demanding that the tweet be taken down. But for hours and hours, it stays up. Ultimately, Eli Lilly is forced to actually cut the price of insulin. It's not clear whether this is a direct result, but it obviously does seem linked. And it's such a clear example of the the very things that Twitter employees had been warning about we need to slow down this launch. Here are all of the things that are going to happen if you push out Twitter blue in this way and in this manner. Instantly, they come to pass. And then fast forward to, I think a lot of people remember, this will go down in in uh, presidential politicking history. Ron DeSantis was almost kind of stillborn at the very outset, at the launch of his campaign on Twitter. Uh, <laughs> yeah. They tried to position that. I remember it was like, uh, you know, I remember his accent or something, uh, Elon Musk. Like, it, it seems like a crashing the servers or something. Like it's, mm-hmm. He's trying to make it that, that there's so much demand that they're banging down the doors. But at best, he sounded tinny and it was discombobulated and they had to go into several rooms. And I can't help but think that campaign that was once inevitable that recently ended was kind of... Uh, was was kind of done from the very outset. Yeah, but I mean, going back to this two versions of reality, it was so interesting because to you and I, the rollout of that campaign, and just to give listeners a little context, Ron yes. DeSantis, Republican presidential candidate, announces he's running for president on Twitter spaces. This is a really big deal for Elon Musk and Twitter in particular because it's trying to position Twitter spaces as this big political tool. And now we have a presidential candidate rolling out his campaign on the platform. Unfortunately, the Twitter space is plagued with problems from the outset. The first room that everyone is in crashes immediately. Elon Musk and David Sachs, one of his advisors, are trying to co-host the room. And the servers are essentially melting down. Finally, they're able to start the room and the sound is off. There's a bunch of glitches. And they realize that they essentially didn't prepare enough on the technical level for such a big event. To you and I, and to so many others, this looks like such a failure. They had just fallen on their faces. It was an embarrassment. The announcement was plagued with problems. And suddenly that was the story. It wasn't that he was running for president. It was that the campaign rollout was so botched. But if you looked at what Ron DeSantis was saying, what Elon Musk was saying, and David Sachs were saying, they were saying, we basically broke the internet. This was such a success that we melted down servers. Like, look at us. It was so popular. They were sharing stats that people were very dubious about in terms of how many people had actually listened in and trying to position it as a resounding success. And we saw their fans essentially buy that message. You know how there there are wags out there, there are fanboys who and fangirls who say Elon Musk is the next Steve Jobs, there is something that they really have in common in this is I think of that reality distortion force field. Walter Isaacson wrote it about the late Steve Jobs and that you can walk in and convince someone of the reality. He even had that charisma, that go hardcore, that listen, what I say, you will will it into existence. That worked with certain uh, Twitter alums who stuck around or were able to hold on to their jobs. It's kind of don't ask for permission, ask for forgiveness, if at all. Just go in and bust it up. I thought that there was no deference at all given to the um, the square foot requirements, the city of San Francisco building inspectors. If he walked in and he saw that the servers had to be moved, he just immediately imagined the truck. There's this, there's this can-do spirit that clearly got him to where he is, and he's rolling up his sleeves, and he's certainly fearless, but it's also bull in a china shop. Yeah, absolutely. I think there's no question that his risk tolerance, the reality distortion field that you talked about, they have positive benefits when you're building companies that no one has been able to build and succeed in quite like you have before. Like you have to take that leap. At the same time, I think over time, Elon Musk's 
distortion has become even more distorted, if you will. He has gotten more out there, more isolated. And at best, let me say, salutary neglect from the boards of SpaceX and Tesla. You can go in and read this in the Wall Street Journal last week. They all look the other way because many of these board members are friends. The stock grants that they got are worth astronomic amounts. Uh, You don't have an incentive to go in and call the person out. Again, it reminds me of Tony Shea, who did succumb to drug abuse and self-harm. And yeah, a lot of people have commented on this. If you go look at the Zappos founder, tremendous amount of respect. But at some point, the party was so great and the money was so great and the coterie and the hangers-on so wanted to be there that nobody told the emperor that he had no clothes. Yeah, exactly that. And I think we don't have a good understanding of when the reality distortion field has positive benefits and when it can be very detrimental. I think when you're running a platform like X, like Twitter, it's really dangerous to do that. It's different when you're building the iPhone or a car, but when you're doing something that's a global platform that has implications for democracy around the world, I think the stakes are quite different. Full disclosure, stay with us. This show podcast to all of the fine podcatchers, NPR, Spotify, Apple, the link, please subscribe and rate us is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. We are on NPR member station, Radio IQ, NPR's Virginia news station. You can follow us on handle Full D Radio as long as Twitter X exists. If not there, then we are still on Instagram, not yet threads. You can find us on LinkedIn. Heck, I'm sure I have a MySpace account, but keep faith. If you're just joining us, my guest is Zoe Schiffer of Platformer. She is the author of the immensely enjoyable and readable book and surreal book, Extremely Hardcore, Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. This, again, is the story of, I would think it's one of the biggest cell phones in history. Uh, It didn't have to happen. He did not have to acquire it for $44 billion. He could have disgorged a $1 billion breakup fee. He tried to break out of it the second half of 2022. And you know what? You own it. And what are you going to do with it? Every evidence has showed that advertisers have fled. uh, User engagement has kind of hemorrhaged. By all metrics, the kind of the show has moved on. And this is what I want to bring back to you. At some point, it kind of doesn't even matter. So if he's on the hook for, say, 15 or $20 billion of this, and he might buy the rest of the debt from the banks, he's still worth $262 billion. He's still going to goose that net worth when and if SpaceX goes public. I mean, these are absurd amounts that kind of... I just remember when Marissa Mayer was announced as CEO of Yahoo several years ago, some people said one of the knocks is she's not really that aligned with Yahoo shareholders because she's already independently wealthy from her tour of duty at, at Google. I mean, this is orders of magnitude larger than that. Yeah, absolutely. And we have to remember that this whole acquisition came about because Elon Musk had sold a bunch of Tesla stock and he had about $10 billion burning a hole in his pocket. So from the outset, this was fun money. And like you said, who is on the hook for that $13 billion in bank debt? It's X, it's Twitter, it's not Elon Musk. And so if this company fails, if it is completely subsumed by XAI, his artificial intelligence company, which is my hypothesis, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't stick to him. It doesn't impact him. Is there any evidence now that he would walk away from it? At this point, it's not going to look so bad because, you know, when he was looking for a CEO, he's like, if you're sure you want the job, like this guy wears his pain out there. I remember when he was pulling the crazy hours at Tesla to ramp it up to kind of a certain production equilibrium. He was proudly sleeping on a mattress in the production area. He was weeping in interviews of the New York Times. He was unstable in person. I mean, talk about extremely hardcore. He was the very personification of that. Would it be so difficult for him to kind of let the creditors keep what's left of Twitter? I think it would. I mean, this is, I'm speculating here, but I think so much of his ego is wrapped up in being the main character on X that it's going to be very hard for him to hand over the reins to someone else. You know, at Tesla, at SpaceX, he does have lieutenants who he trusts to do the job in his absence, even though he is quite involved in the day-to-day running of those companies. I don't think that Linda Yaccarino is that person. I think that Elon Musk still sees himself as the person running X. And I think that it will be a decline that continues to be slow and arduous and happen over time. It will not come when he just walks away or the company simply goes bankrupt. Now, if you say notionally, it's it. Let's say optimistically, it's still worth fifteen or twenty billion dollars as an enterprise value, and they use that to encourage and retain what they have left of, in terms of programmers and essential staff at Twitter. 
I'm I'm shocked that he's saying the opportunity for us is 10x your investment. Stick around because there's this unresolved issue with him. If we take Elon Musk back to PayPal, which you know was a really great IPO in 2002, and then I believe eBay acquired them, and it's become ubiquitous these days. We do Zen, you know, Venmo, Zelle, Apple Pay. He has this idea that we could backwards integrate the everything app into what was Twitter. He since killed the bird proudly. It's X. But you'll have, you know, DMs, encryption, all sorts of stuff. Comment on that. Yeah. So this has been his dream since the 90s. One of the big disputes between Elon Musk and PayPal when the companies merged was that he wanted to call it X Corp. And he had big visions for what it could be, not simply a payments platform, but more than that, kind of an early version of an everything app. And that wasn't something that the rest of the company was interested in. Ultimately, he has pushed out as CEO of that company. And we see him kind of nurse his obsession with the letter X. He names one of his kids X. And when he has this $10 billion burning a hole in his pocket in early 2023, what does he do? He decides to buy Twitter. And from the outset, although he didn't announce it at the time, he tells his close confidants, this is my chance to see my vision of X come to life. So he was always going to kill the bird. He was always going to make Twitter X. But with these grandiose pronouncements on Twitter (laughs) and in emails that I'm trying to advance humanity, I'm trying to save free speech. And I can tell you that the quantity of bots, you know, ever since my blue check mark now departed, I mean, my mom hasn't spoken to me since my check mark was taken away. But the right wing, the vitriol, the anti-Semitism, the, the neo kind of MAGA insurrectionist stuff, you have evidence that that has exploded. And clearly, there's a second order effect with all the anti-Semitism, especially in the wake of October 7th in the Middle East. It's, again, beyond surreal to me that he he talks, he reacts, he tweets, and then next thing you know is Bibi Netanyahu has convinced him to visit Israel. He, he just has to be everywhere and nowhere. Yeah, I mean, he has said before that he doesn't, he didn't do this to make money. And he if limiting his free speech is a requirement for that, he is not interested in it. He wants to say whatever is on his mind when he wants to say it. Consequences be damned. I mean, all of the things that you're pointing at, the hate speech, the harassment, the blue check mark spreading disinformation and misinformation, these were all things that Twitter employees were warning Elon Musk about very explicitly from the moment that he bought the company. If you loosen the reins on content moderation, if you allow anyone to say anything, you've actually limited the free speech of most people because what people want, what the average user wants is a place where you can talk online without immediately receiving death threats or seeing a naked video purporting to be Drake or Taylor Swift. It's not a fun experience to be on a platform that is overrun with non-consensual pornography and harassment. And yet Elon Musk has said that essentially... And not these words. <laughs> that is the price that he's willing to pay. He wants Twitter to be a place or X to be a place where anyone can say anything within the bounds of the law. But all of the consent decrees with justice, and he's run afoul of the SEC in various places, all that stuff was null and voided by this acquisition. I mean, an independent director doesn't have to be there. I mean, if you could, if you could step back from this and tell us the saga of Yoel Roth, I think that says a lot about this. Yeah, absolutely. So Yoel Roth is the head of trust and safety at Twitter. His boss is this woman, Vijaya Gade, who's Twitter's chief legal officer. She was a fierce free speech advocate, but for whatever reason, Elon Musk had identified her as the top censor of Twitter, and he wanted her gone. This was actually a key reason that his relationship with Parag Agarwal broke down, because Parag refused to fire Vijaya. So Yoel, from the beginning... Parag being the previous CEO. Yes, the previous CEO. So Yoel, from the beginning, assumes that he is also going to be fired because Elon Musk seems to link trust and safety with censorship. Essentially, Yoel's team was the one that was involved in decisions around banning Donald Trump, but also in trying to keep 
Twitter safe and free of harassment and hate speech. So the night of the acquisition, the deal closes and Yoel receives a message telling him that Elon Musk wants to meet with him. And he's certain, okay, this is the end. So he walks past his colleagues. He's trying to put on a brave face because he doesn't want to stress people out. And he goes to this meeting. And to his surprise, Elon Musk actually wants to get his advice. Elon Musk wants to fire a large portion of the employees. And And time out, Zoe. Every time you have one of these anecdotes in the book, my heart skips several beats (laughs) because you wonder if it's a trap that he's just going to fire you on the spot, which he's done with other people. You suggest radical candor. Again, we saw this with... You know, read read the you know Bridge Bridgewater's CEO. Yeah. Other people out there who purport to be in favor of uh, transparency and criticism, and I can only be better by differing opinions or a kitchen cabinet of people. But in so many times in the books, you you demonstrated that this person will quickly like dispatch you. Absolutely. Fortunately for Yoel, he felt like he had very little to lose by being honest with Elon Musk because he thought he was going to lose his job anyway. And so when Elon Musk asks him at this very first meeting, like, how do I stop employees who are going to be laid off from sabotaging me and this platform on their way out the door? Yoel has a bunch of tools that he thinks can help. He can lock down a lot of the code base and essentially make it so that it's hard for people to access um, aspects of the technology that could be harmful if they were misused in some way. But Yoel also says, like, look, we have a midterm election coming up in the United States. We have a presidential election coming up in Brazil. We need to prepare for these things. And to his shock at the time, Elon Musk says, yeah, you're absolutely right. We need to take care of that. So Yoel leaves the meeting feeling like, wow, rather than being fired, he actually has what looks like support from this new CEO. Over the next few weeks, we saw Elon Musk really defending Yoel as people were coming after him for various things. I I remember it. Yeah. and, And propping him up there are the relationship starts to get a little bit strained with the rollout of Twitter Blue because Yoel is one of the people advocating very loudly internally that they need to slow down the rollout. If it happens, it was scheduled to happen the day before the midterm elections. And Yoel's like, this is going to be a trust and safety nightmare, but Elon won't hear it. Finally, Elon relents and schedules the rollout for a couple days after. Now, Yoel Roth ultimately leaves the company under some duress, but I think, and Kara Swisher has pointed this out too, and this is where it really starts to get ugly and does resemble something like, you know, goons and Gestapo. The amount of vitriol that is dispensed on a person, and it reminds me of the yeah. whole pedo, pedo guy yeah. thing that happened with the, the submarine, uh, I guess the, the, the rescue of divers uh, in the cave in Thailand or something several years ago, where yeah. Elon said something that was defamatory. Um he pounced on a way that, you know, here's a person who is homosexual, Yael Roth, and he did not stop it when that kind of bled into larded up accusations of pedophilia and I guess you're suborning this kind of bad behavior. You saw immediately how that could turn into kind of a virtual lynch mob. Absolutely. And that's exactly what happened. So a few weeks later, Yoel Roth is forced to resign, essentially, because what he's being asked to do is so preposterous at this point that he feels like if he stays, the rest of the trust and safety community is going to look at what he's doing and assume he's just bad at his job. And he's not willing to take that reputational risk for Elon Musk. So he resigns, he drives home, and Elon Musk starts interacting with this person who essentially um, looks through Yoel's old tweets, finds his actual thesis where he's advocating, I believe, for minors to have more protections online. And this person insinuates that Yoel is actually arguing the opposite, that he is a pedophile who's interested in preying on young people. And Elon Musk, rather than ignoring this or refuting it, actually augments this conspiracy theory. And what happens for Yoel and his husband is that they are essentially forced to leave their house, eventually sell it, because the level of vitriol, the level of death threats that they are receiving is truly worrying, and they have to go into hiding. Zoe, there are no checks on this person. Not a board, not an independent thing, not a mentor. I don't know if Larry Ellison, you know, this other, you know, multi-multi-billionaire who, who has a kind of a don't-give-a-crap attitude can intervene and say, look, you're a bucking bronco. You're a bull in a china shop. This is really dangerous. Uh, I think about the feds and whistleblower protections. I mean, think about the things you went through to vet people, to protect sources who got in touch. People were getting screen grabs of Slack messages. It was 
absolutely a hunt for internal dissidents. It's brutal. And there were no outlets for anybody to go out. I've, clearly, the company is not under the auspices of the SEC anymore. It's not publicly traded. It doesn't have quarterly reports coming out. Without people like you, uh, it would just all be done behind the scenes. Yeah, I mean, I think this is why what we are doing as journalists is so important. I don't know if Elon Musk cares that much about the truth when it comes down to it. When he's tweeted about my own reporting, he said things like the source for this article is a disgruntled former employee who went to work at Google. This is an actual tweet that he sent at one point. And even that showed such a fundamental misunderstanding of how journalism works. A single source for all of these stories, you wouldn't be able to report anything with a single source, particularly an anonymous source. And that profile that he had didn't fit the profile of anyone I'd ever spoken to. But like you said, he continues to act with impunity. And I think it is on us as journalists to continue holding his feet to the fire where we can and telling the real stories and the impact that his decisions have on real people, employees and users alike. Full disclosure, do stay with us. This show podcast to NPR, Spotify, all fine podcatchers indeed, including and especially Apple Podcasts. The link, please subscribe, is fulldradio.com. Again, the handle is fulldradio on all the socials. Please do follow. Zoe Schiffer, author of Extremely Hardcore Inside Elon Musk's Twitter in the last, you know, the final stretch of this show, and I wish it could go on forever. You are, of course, a managing editor of Platformer, where you cover Twitter, X Corp, and Elon Musk. You were previously at The Verge, where you covered the labor movement in Silicon Valley. These are important through lines in this book right now. I think it's important to get to the fact that even with the diminished networking effects, even with all the value destruction, it's not like you could port your act. Meta, Facebook tried with threads. I'm not convinced, you know, several months later that everybody is on threads. Like all of the legacy stuff, all of the investment you put in as a content creator, as a tweeter over the better part of 15 years is still on Twitter. And there's only so much you could do on LinkedIn or Instagram or other places. And there's login fatigue. So comment on the impossibility of kind of recreating this experiment, this experience in kind of a more of a benign and protected setting. Yeah. I mean, first, I'll just say that I think it's high time you join us on threads. It's not that bad. And the time has come. There is a critical mass of people. But on a serious note, it's extremely painful, particularly for an independent journalist like myself. My platform on Twitter is 10 times bigger than my platform on any other social platform. And I've made the decision, really a moral decision to walk away from that. I've completely stopped tweeting. I know obviously your NPR has gotten off the platform as well. And I think when we have a CEO, a, a platform, an owner who is not just not supportive of the news industry, but is actively promoting misinformation and trying to dismantle legacy media, is doing everything he can to sow mistrust what we do by being part of that platform is legitimize it. And I couldn't be a part of that. So we're starting from scratch. We're going to these other platforms. Whenever I post on threads, now I feel like I need to simultaneously post on Blue Sky. That's a painful process. It's not fun. But I think that's kind of the future, regardless of what happens with X. The future of the social web is decentralized. It's federated. And I think more and more we'll be able to post one place and see that same message across different apps. But right now we're in the kind of transition period and it's simply not fun. <laughs> And I feel like you're reading my mind. Uh, you know, you are managing editor of Platformer. And I've been thinking about this a lot in this latest. I would say we are again in a media depression. There's been so many layoffs. This black January, if you think about the Washington Post, the LA Times, I don't I wouldn't put the messenger in there, but all of the digital native uh, journalist startups that maybe got high on zero interest rate policy that let people go off from the traditional platforms and practice something and be really good beat reporters, whether you were at Vox, I don't know, Platform or The Verge, uh, it's harder than ever to be an investigative reporter. I think, you know, even the Wall Street Journal in the wake of this Elon Musk investigation of his drug abuse and salutary neglect from the board has been laying off people. You, you, have, you, you look up and down and everywhere and there's just this ongoing mass dieout. And the more it happens and the more uh, people like this are not called out by anyone. You have to wonder, I mean, uh, is anybody going to turn off the lights? 
No, I know. It's really scary. I mean, like you, I didn't start my career in journalism largely because when I said as a teenager that I wanted to be a journalist, I was laughed at and told that the industry was dying and there were going to be no jobs. And I had a lot of insecurity about that, a lot of fear about not having money, not being able to pay rent when I graduated college. And so I went to work in tech. And when I ultimately saw that the industry was changing for sure, but there were still jobs there and I could still make a start as a journalist, I felt like I made that decision for the love of the craft and not for stability or financial gain necessarily. And so I have a tremendous amount of hope that we will be able to weather this storm, that generative AI itself isn't killing journalism, the business model needed to shift and change. And weirdly, being an independent journalist right now feels far more stable than being at one of these established publications that you mentioned that are going through layoffs, because what I have is a direct relationship with my readers, with our readers at our tiny publication, and we're not reliant on advertisers. And so we're able to weather some of these storms a little bit better. Are you Substacking? We're not. We got off Substack. <laughs> we're hoping that I mean, all K- of the platform jumping K- will stop. But yeah. So Casey is off Substack as well. Casey Newton. He is my business partner. So yeah, I'm the managing editor of the publication that he runs. So these are the stories when Substack was getting so much attention two years ago. For the lay listeners out there, for secessionists from traditional legacy media who wanted to go off and be free and eat what they kill, if you will, there was this agreement with this platform, Substack, to go out there. And if you hit a critical mass, there are some Substacks that are enormously subscribed, that are some that are lightly maintained. I think Steve Inskeep of NPR, who we had on the live show last week, keeps some notes on his Substack just as a place to keep notes. But how are you making a living? This is what I want to ask you directly, like you and Casey. I want to get into the nitty gritty of this right now because you need to be able to make a living. It's not like you can gig on the side and this is expensive stuff. You have time, you have expenses, you have a family. Yeah. So we moved our Substack to a similar platform called Ghost that is run by a nonprofit. And so the business model for us hasn't changed. We sell subscriptions and that's how we make money. And I think both of us are making more money now than we were when we worked at The Verge and we were well paid at The Verge for journalists, I believe. So what we've seen is that people will pay for good analysis and they'll pay for scoops. And we've been able to build out a robust business. We hired a third person last year simply by doing our jobs, by breaking good news and trying to lead the news cycle whenever we can. This is the amazing thing. So on the strength of your name and your trust, and you you showed us in this book the steps you would take with people like Lynn and others who were let go, the confidence that you showed just on the strength of that, we don't need a, an NBC News attached to Zoe or a Verge or one of these other you know back offices or mastheads. Just on the strength of that, you could show up and get your calls returned at the highest levels of Silicon Valley. Well, (laughs) I will say it's a little different for me than it is for Casey. One reason that I've always preferred the worker story is simply because most of the CEOs won't talk to me. I'm either not important enough or the type of stories I write are not the ones they want told. And so I can't get my calls answered at the highest levels. But I think that that's actually made me a better journalist. I've never been able to rely on access. And I've always had to go to the people who had the least amount of power at these organizations and start there, get their stories and work my way up. What are you making of all these Sturm and Drang in California over fast food minimum wages? I have to ask you, while we're talking workers, I know it's a little bit off your beaten path, but there are all these people on TikTok complaining about the cost of a Big Mac value meal at the same time, but you can't have one without the other. You can't have a prevailing $15 minimum wage or a market clearing $16, $17 minimum wage without a, a commensurate increase in menu costs. Yeah, we've seen this so many times where people will talk and cry about how little Uber drivers are making while in the same breath complaining that the cost of an Uber has gone up exponentially and it's not like it used to be. So I think we're always going to have to take a little bit of pain if what we want is for workers everywhere to be better compensated, to have more rights. It's just a rough transition when you're used to getting food so cheaply. Tell us where this Musk story is headed. I, again, am shocked by the amount of key man risk that one single human being, I mean, more than you can imagine that Carnegie or or Bill Gates or anybody in history had. When you have a person at the nexus of the electrification of the global auto fleet, of, of rocket science, of satellite war technology, of national security, again, there were crazy stuff in that expose that the Defense Department was asking Elon Musk for permission. Yeah. 
Yeah, he really does operate with almost unchecked power. And I think what we've seen over the last couple of years in particular is someone who seems quite unwell, who seems like they spend far too much time on Twitter, ironically, who doesn't have a lot of close social connections and truly seems to be spinning out a little bit. But where does this all lead? We don't know, because as you said, we've never had someone this wealthy or with this much unchecked power before. And so I think we have yet to see what will come of all of it. But I can tell you one thing. I will continue to follow the story. I'm very interested in where this all leads. And I think looking at Elon Musk beyond just Twitter and his influence at SpaceX and Tesla and now XAI, that will be my focus moving forward. I, I mean, I know, I know, you know, uh, licensed psychotherapists, they generally will not come on the air and through television or something else diagnose a person. But you have all of these people going on pods and saying that you are seeing a very public meltdown, whether it's exacerbated by uh, drug use, which has been documented and reported well by the Wall Street Journal, whether it's ketamine, cocaine, it's the fellow bros, it's the Yes Network behind him of Gracias and Calcanis, who's been on the show in the past. Nobody coming to him and saying, dude, enough, detox. I think Larry Ellison tried to get yeah, into detox. <laughs> I think his but friends again, have... You know, other people have said this. You, If you have no guardrails, like if I say to my kids, like if I had an experiment and just let you have cookies and Coca-Cola for the entire week, as much as you wanted, what do you think the consequences would be? Would you be manic in the morning? Would you have a tummy ache? Would daddy have to put you in the bathtub at three in the morning to resolve <laughs> your tummy ache? I mean, close us out on that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think that, that that is really this story in a nutshell. What happens when one person is able to operate with such unchecked power? What happens when someone doesn't have people around him who will push back on him, who will say, you're wrong, you need to stop, you need to chill? I think that we're seeing the effects of that and we're seeing it at such a global scale and with such massive ramifications because it's Elon Musk that we're talking about. Again, he's worth... $262 billion. It fluctuates every day just on notional value of SpaceX and Tesla. Someday it could be 215 to I mean, these are enormous sums to kind of get your head around. And at some point, money does not become a guardrail itself. And I think your book is such a cautionary uh, tale. Again, it's extremely hardcore inside Elon Musk's Twitter by Zoe Schiffer. You are officially a friend of the show. Please come back on. Thank you so much for having me. Full disclosure, special thanks to Claire Morgan and Case Graham at Notterly. We podcast to NPR, Apple, Spotify, all the fine podcatchers. The link, please subscribe. It is all there, is fulldradio.com. Again, fulldradio.com. And follow us on all the socials at handle fulldradio. A shout out to our listeners on NPR member station Radio IQ. That's Virginia's NPR news station. Message me to carry full disclosure on your air. My DMs are always open. And catch me every week on NPR's Here and Now. I'm Robin Farzad. Thank you for listening. Back with you next week. 